0: Hello, I'm your host, Claudia Shambaugh, welcoming you to the April 12th, 2021 edition of Digging Out. This program's getting us past November 3rd, December 3rd, 2020, January 6th, January 20th, 2021, as we collectively clear the debris from the last four days, four weeks, four years, four centuries. My guest today is former Assemblywoman, Representative Christy Smith, whose close general election loss last year really does meet the show's theme. Stay with me, listeners. It will be apparent. She was elected to the California State Assembly in November 2018 to represent the 38th Assembly District in the Santa Clarita, California region. She chaired the Joint Legislative Committee on Emergency Management. Christy Smith formerly served two terms as a governing board member of the Newhall School District. She was chair of the Measure E Prop 39 bond campaign for the Newhall District. She is a product of the Santa Clarita school system. She attended College of the Canyons and graduated from UCLA with a Bachelor's of Arts in Political Science. After graduating, she served as an analyst at the U.S. Department of Education in the Clinton administration. She founded the Valencia Valley Technological Education Foundation and served as its initial chair, serving as now as a legislative vice president of the Santa Clarita Valley Trustees Association and as a delegate to the California School Board Association. She is one of four Democrats challenging incumbent Congressman Mike Garcia in California's 25th congressional district in the 2022 primary. This is her third attempt to represent this congressional district. She comes to us today from Santa Clarita. Welcome to digging out Representative Smith. Thank you, Claudia. Good to be with you. Well, in your general election bid challenging incumbent Mike Garcia, Ms. Smith, you came within 333 votes. I know this is a refrain but that is read and tweeted and it's covered over and over again, but I want for listeners who happen to miss that, you came within 333 votes of winning that seat. Eyes were on that tabulation when we noticed that Mike Garcia joined the Republican federal legislators who voted against certifying the Biden-Harris 2020 electoral outcome. I'll just give you a moment to speak to what you were considering at that moment, and then we'll move on to very specific policy areas that affect all Californians.
1: Well, thank you, Claudia. I appreciate the way you framed that because that really is, the way that as I reflect on it is so poignant, you know, we're having this national conversation now about voter empowerment and expanding the franchise and access to the vote and on the GOP side, you have a very decided and deliberate effort at changing the way elections operate in states. Over uh, 300 bills now in more than 25 states aimed at limiting access to the polls, which changes people's opportunity to vote. And when you look at an election like mine that was so incredibly close, literally down to 333 votes in the final weeks of tabulation, uh, it is hard to argue that every vote doesn't count. And as a country, particularly with our federal elections, we've got to do everything that we can to ensure that there is equitable and easy access for people to vote. You know, Americans' lives have changed dramatically. So many people commute, work more than one job, work, uh, you know, far from home, don't have access uh, to a nearby voting location in so many places. And so, what we found during the pandemic is that with the ability, to vote by mail using what had been just simply absentee in many states but then became, you know, a method more widely available in this last election turnout was incredible. And so really what the GOP is after right now is limiting that turnout because they fare better in those kind of elections and I think you know, my race in particular is simply just a hallmark of a system that worked, that really protected the rights of every voter while still having this expansive access. And that's something we need to fight hard to maintain.
0: So the election integrity caucus that the incumbent has uh, sponsored, this is a, this is also, it's a federal legislative effort. I don't know what you would like, how you'd respond to that particular, a measure.
1: Well, you know, the irony is rich for me. You see the Republican delegation now trying to co-opt the language integrity. And really what, what they are trying to frame as integrity is limitations, still insisting that despite the multiple lawsuits brought by the Trump campaign that were all knocked down in court, that they're insisting that there be uh, voter ID laws and limitations on when people can access the ballot box and their ability to vote, and it it simply rings, as President Biden has said, unAmerican uh, for us to persist down that path.
0: So how, have you, as you've tapped into, because your your campaign is well underway, well ahead of the primary, June twenty twenty two. What are the responses you're getting—I don't mean the people that are working in your campaign <laughs> office, but the people, the 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 entity, the various institutions, the public that you're randomly encountering—that such that you can during a pandemic right now, because that that pandemic certainly removed you from more immediate contact going into the general election which was a big factor as you've talked about in the press but let's I want to talk about what reactions are you getting to how the 25th is being represented in congress
1: Yeah, There is a lot of concern. I mean, and I would certainly say, you know, that 333 vote difference was so small. There are already at least that many people with a considerable amount of buyer's remorse, particularly um, after Congressman Garcia's initial um, vote, you know, that led to the January 6th insurrection to not certify the election results of states thereby disenfranchising or attempting to disenfranchise those voters' preferences in those states, and then subsequently to have voted against the American Rescue Plan, um, the the significant financial support that has now gotten us well on the way to having um, all of America vaccinated, uh, to having recovery in our schools and our local governments. He voted no on that. He's voted no on the Violence Against Women Act. So he is not holding true to what are the political leanings of a very diverse district, but where polling nationally shows those are widely popular bills and programs, even Republicans um, widely supporting those measures. And he finds himself you know, to the extreme right of his own uh, communities. And so people are very enthusiastic that I'm you know, offering myself uh, into this race again uh, because of the constraints that we had last time uh, given the the cloud of the pandemic and our real desire on our campaign to keep our community safe by not doing that door-to-door outreach you'll see a very different campaign this time and i think people are ready for it
0: well and the stakes are high it's already now con- the 25th congressional district is a priority for both parties so uh, we we get to take a, a a lap here with you now to do uh, in the very beginnings of this this campaign. So I, I want to focus from here on mainly on the um, this whole idea of the notion of what is infrastructure, and I want to sort of break it down in so many different arenas. Is there for you, Representative Smith, is there an operating definition for you what infrastructure encompasses? Oh,
1: I love this question. So, you know, traditionally, we've looked at infrastructure as sort of the nuts and bolts and the rigging that holds our country together, our roads, our bridges, our dams, our levees, our physical energy infrastructure. But what we've realized over the course of this pandemic is fissures that exist in our society that can be related to physical infrastructure, for instance, um, you know, ventilation systems in many of our nation's outdated schools, but also infrastructure in our healthcare system. We simply need more locations to provide people healthcare. As we were seeing the COVID crisis ramp up, we realized that there were counties and communities across the country that lacked a hospital even with one ICU bed, let alone uh, enough ventilators. We know that care for our aging senior population, many of whom can no longer be cared for at home. We lack sufficient infrastructure and housing for them. Um, housing for our unhoused populations has become a crisis uh, across the country, particularly here in Southern California and California writ large, um, and as well as infrastructure for child care. You know, when the world of work as we know it ground to a halt, and parents needed to be um, at home but still be able to work. Uh, this notion that we didn't have enough places for um, safe and easily accessible, affordable childcare across the country became immediately apparent. So, all of the measures that are included in President Biden's infrastructure spending package are incredibly important. And what they have allowed us to do is to start to think more broadly about those things that we do consider to be infrastructure and how important they are to our daily lives.
0: Well, the New Republic recently published an article. I'm gonna give a shout out to Osita Wanebu who talked about a particular part of what he called civic infrastructure. And that is a Venn diagram that overlaps your path and mine that this would include local journalism, as he was advocating for like a, just a shrivel of a percentage of the whole infrastructure package to be considered on the federal legislative arena. So that there, I, I look at the local journalism carrying a lot of responsibilities with communicating emergency management uh, crises. So I, I want to know if that's something you would consider a legitimate portion of what is part of civic infrastructure.
1: Absolutely. And I think particularly when you talk about um, public access, local journalism, that is something that has fallen by the wayside as more community newspapers and local outlets have struggled to stay afloat, simply not being able to bring in the kind of commercial support that they need to continue to publish. But they are, you know, a community's lifeline when it comes to important emergency information as you indicated or you know in in the current crisis simply where uh, to go in the community to get a vaccine Uh, so that is a a very interesting and i I think a very reasonable uh, addition as well you know to this larger conversation of infrastructure
0: And not to mention a foil from social media echo chambers that are undermining what local government's all about, what's happening in various arenas. So I'm glad to have that addressed. So um, for those of you who've just joined us, you're listening to Digging Out. My guest is Representative Christy Smith. We're recording this on April 9th and Representative Christy Smith is challenging the incumbent Congressman Mike Garcia in California's 25th congressional district. The primary is June of 2022, but there, there's a lot on the line. It makes so much sense now as we're talking about what's encompassed in infrastructure. So there's a lot heating up around here. I'm going to talk about a little bit about the infrastructure dealing with uh, clean water. And uh, that's there's two parts to that. There's the the PFAS and the PFAS that are present in the groundwater and landfills and at the airports. And the PFAS were something that the neighboring congressional district, the 48th here in California, that Harley Ruda was a real quick study on the PFAS. And he's been replaced by somebody who's rather more interested in trafficking and red meat. So I wanna know what kind of background do you bring to investigating PIFA is PIFA standards and mitigation. Sure, it was something that I absolutely engaged in in my time in the California
1: State Legislature. So the communities of the 38th Assembly District include uh, Simi Valley and Santa Clarita Valley. Our water systems here uh, definitely were testing at levels of PFOS um, above what should be considered safe. And, and we needed to begin to do a deep dive and investigate and understand why that was. So those water agencies have undertaken some significant testing uh, I was part of a group of legislators urging uh, the governor and state regulators to take a look at levels that are currently considered safe in California and adjusting those downward because we know the implications of water uh, contaminated with with PFAS can be particularly uh, damaging, especially to pregnant women, to young children. And we also need to get to the root of the understanding of of why the increase And, and PFAS chemicals are um, present in so many things, everything from uh, Teflon-coated cookware, uh, of course, to the fire uh, retardant that is used um, every year in California during fire season, of course that sits on the ground after it's used can can seep into uh, our water basins. And so, uh, you know, it is a multi-pronged approach. I'm very glad right now to have been appointed by Speaker Anthony Rendon to be serving on the California uh, Delta Stewardship Council. And um, among scientific work that we look at, of course, are uh, contaminated waterways across California. And this PFAS issue is not only emergent, but it is urgent. And I'm glad it's beginning to get the attention that
0: it deserves. Yes, and I don't forget that I have a lot of receipts in my wallet and those receipts we get from every transaction are PFAS-laden. So it's- Absolutely. We we haven't had our, what are we thinking moment yet. And that's, that's debris here, folks, on digging So let's move on to other water quality issues about managing, not the drought, but managing climate change, a much, much longer term kind of investment structure. We're dealing with a desalination plant in the the Poseidon project in Huntington Beach. And there is a tremendous press to line up the local water quality boards, Coastal Commission kinds of appointments. Those could change. The governor is intent on approving the Poseidon project. What is your approach, Representative Smith, to dealing with that kind of of the availability of potable water in the state of California?
1: Well, it is, again, um, an urgent issue. Uh, California right now is in another drought year. And I know that we need to look at all options on the table. Um, It's also clear that when there is alignment of uh, water agencies, particularly by region um, in terms of maximizing whatever the capacity is for water reclamation, recycling and storage, that is incredibly important. In Southern California, we need to learn to become as self-reliant as we possibly can with the very limited water resources that we have here. Uh, But it, for certain, will continue to be a challenge for us. Uh, New data research out of Berkeley shows that the water cycle in California, the rain season, is now shortened by 27 days. Those 27 days make a significant impact on how much water we are storing as snowpack. Uh, across our Sierras, that is is down significantly over the last couple of years. And that is one of the primary forms of water storage in California that most people don't realize. We simply don't have enough dams, levees, um, aquifers to store the water that we get in the rain season. But now having 27 fewer days of rain season overall means we are simply getting less water in California. And that impacts everything from um, the fishing industry, of course, to agriculture and then consumer water consumption. And, you know, water is a human right. We have to have every community and every household with access to potable uh, water, certainly enough to live. And so it is something this will be our most pressing challenge, I think, in terms of public policy in the near term and at least for the next decade as we build out uh, what this water infrastructure needs to look like. Certainly there are other countries across the world that we can look to. Israel does an incredible job with its water management, but it is something that we need to step up to the plate on sooner rather than later.
0: Well, you mentioned, interestingly, you mentioned in the next decade, and we're we're very well aware in this area that the Poseidon Project is proposing a an- 1999 technology that would obligate the local government water districts to a 50 year time frame for that technology to be used which is a carbon hog and an expensive water distribution financial package so what is your thinking about that time frame that technology and that financial package You know, that has
1: been long been one of the challenges, um, not only in in water management, but other natural resource management that as technology changes, you know, you've put in place a, a costly infrastructure that then needs to be maintained when a new modality is available. Again, so tying back to, you know, the beauty of a new national program for infrastructure investment, it allows us those upgrades. So, you know, I think with respect to the Poseidon project, my hope would be that the local entities and powers that be, um, as this project moves forward, recognize uh, that there might be a more um, carbon neutral option available. Uh, and move in that direction. But again, it, you know, it's one of the many challenges of statewide infrastructure and water um, as well as energy overall is that we have, you know, both compartmentalized municipal decisions and then an overarching kind of state goal when it comes to management. And we really need to do better at aligning all of those perspectives and having options that are available that meet local needs, but address the state's demand overall.
0: Well, I also, I just would like to interject, there is an elegant solution. I'm watching a monthly water dialogues forum in Los Angeles, where there are several small groups that are working with very local solutions with making as permeable as possible surfaces around LA County and creating stormwater kind of encachment sorts of buffers that can then recharge groundwater by capturing the stormwater. So there, that like infrastructure with a small lowercase i. There are those solutions, but they're so they're so bohemian that the standard engineering mindset just can't even b- swallow that idea. Can't, can't yep. really can't even fathom what that.
1: No, and and that's incredibly important. I mean, that literally is a matter of getting back to, you know, grassroots infrastructure. If we think about uh, having building policy that requires that natural recharge basins that fill our aquifers and hold our water supply aren't paved over, redirected, rerouted. Um, we will be serving ourselves well. And so every little piece of policy from something like that to ensure that, you know, we're not putting a parking lot over an area that should have drainage into a natural aquifer, um, that that's occurring.
0: And that there's an aesthetic that that box gets checked because those kinds of buffers and swales and all that were, were remarkably a benefit in the community. And it doesn't require uh, expensive hardening of surfaces to get that job done when you know, to, but it's a huge reversal from get the water cleared out quickly during a, a, a massive rain event, which we're going to be having more and more of those kinds of atmospheric rivers with climate change so if they're getting a lot done it's just this, I guess I'm going to just use this platform to boost that <laughs> thinking so it, it may, it may take flight here. But yeah, so. You're absolutely right. So it's legislation, I'm not sure if it fits in the purview of infrastructure per se, but also there's a a forum about the plastics sector and how the plastics, the externalities of plastics production, use and removal are not figured into those cheap little plastics that are so ubiquitous in our marketplace. I want to know what kinds of legislation would you be, or have you been involved with, maybe at the state level, what you envision would, would meet the needs here in the federal level that, that legislate producer responsibility as opposed to putting the onus on the consumer? Sure. So last year in the state legislature, uh, there was
1: a bill co-authors, Senator Ben Allen and Assemblymember Lorena Gonzalez, that sought to get us on this path with plastics recycling in California. Um, As you're well aware, we are not recycling plastic in California anymore, nearly to the extent that we need to be a small fraction of, of what we put in our recycling actually is getting recycled right now. Um, there are many, again, if we look for global examples of, of what can be done with plastics recycling and remanufacturing, um, there are they are plentiful, uh, but we need to start that here in California and, and having it be an onus um, on an infrastructure, on a system where publicly there can be recycling, but also Uh, the producers need to be involved in this. Um, We cannot have this never ending supply of single use plastic that ends up in our landfills. Uh, It it will catch up to us so much sooner than we realize. In fact, it already is. And uh, it it is an urgent matter. So I'm very hopeful that the California legislature, again, will pick up this matter this year and, and be able to move somewhere on it.
0: But I'm with what is it a nine nine or ten percent rate of recycling? I think that's like the national average. And so when I when I go to the marketplace, I am really hard pressed to find products that are not wrapped in plastics that aren't recyclable. Even I mean, we're setting aside that there are some recyclable products out there, but much of it is not recyclable at all. Right. I, I'm in a squeeze play. What am I going to do? I just not buy anything and. You know, I, that's where I'm. I'm interested in what the legislative role is here in enforcing producer responsibility with getting those externalities addressed.
1: Right. I mean, and, 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 that's the other look at it, right. Is, is, do we start to more consistently and heavily regulate what packaging looks like? I, I can remember going to a, a well-known organic food store right. a couple of years ago and the they had bulk
0: peeled, storage or the bulk purchases, right?
1: Yeah. They, well, they had peeled an, an actual orange and then put it inside of a plastic container. And I thought, you know, an orange, if anything, you know, comes in its own container already. And, right. and so we really do, you know, and I appreciate that you as a consumer are making those choices. I certainly try to. And that is probably an overall part of the package that we need to look at is is really uh, limiting what that packaging looks like. Anyone who's been a parent knows that every child's toy, you know, simply that could have sat on a shelf comes in, in this abundant packaging of both cardboard and plastic and wiring. And people need to see to, I think, to actually physically see, they need drone footage over their own local landfill Um, to see the end result of what we are doing um, to our planet with that packaging leftover. Uh, It it discreetly gets removed from our curb,
0: which is convenient, but it does go somewhere
1: and we're still living with it.
0: And there is much more to say, but in the interest of time, I'm going to ask this last question. The California Citizens Redistricting Commission is now doing their work of public outreach right now. They're not putting pen down on the maps yet, but I want to know what you are following in the way of the redistricting, where the maps are going to change the way Californians' districts will look, including pretty much a certainty, I think, that California will lose a congressional district. How are you monitoring that process underway? And maybe, maybe you're sending your former constituents to contribute to those outreaches of the, the commission.
1: Well, I, you know, I would love to start by saying that these are the days that I'm so proud to be in California, where we have figured out a way to do this that is nonpartisan, that is balanced, that is unbiased, that allows the public considerable opportunity to weigh in on what those boundaries look like for the communities and, and who will ultimately represent the communities that they live in. Uh, the commission is tasked with a, a list of bullet points of things to consider, keeping communities of interest together, where. possible, optimizing um, minority and marginalized community voters so that their voices are heard as well. And so the process ordinarily would be starting early because the census data is so delayed. We're hearing that a first draft of maps now might not be available until sometime uh, in the fall, late September to early October, perhaps. Once that's available, there is a very robust public process in California for those maps to be vetted. Um, it is possible that we might be losing a congressional seat in California after reapportionment, and that's the decision uh, that occurs with how many Americans will one member of Congress represent in each given state. Uh, but, you know, again, I, I think we can hold our process here up as a national model of how it ought to be done, and um, I would encourage anyone who's interested, there's, there's tremendous resources online. If you're interested in what happens at your local community on how these maps are drawn for everything from your local school board, all the way up to your member of Congress, um, do engage in the process. It is rewarding. It is fascinating. And, um, you know, we're just so privileged here for all of us to be able to be a part of that.
0: Not in the service of shameless promotion, but I did on my other show, Ask a Leader, I I spent a whole hour with the Huntington Beach Redistricting Commissioner and the Stockton Redistricting Commissioner. And I teed up the whole interview with, we have one less thing to worry about when we have our Redistricting Commission and Independent Commission serving us here. Absolutely. Well, I thank you, Christy Smith, for your time today. I really appreciate it. I enjoyed our time together. Thank you so much, Claudia. My guest was former Assemblywoman Christy Smith candidate running in the California 25th Congressional District in the 2022 primary. We're recording this on April 9th. Next week, UCI sociologist David Snow will talk about homeless encampment demolitions, such as what we witnessed at Echo Park in Los Angeles. Talk with you next week. Thanks for listening.